You can be seated. Thank you for being here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, if not, the scripture will be up on the screen so you won't have to, you won't be lost or anything. And so, uh, Romans chapter 12. Let me ask you a question as we get started today. Um, how many of you have ever wanted something new? Like something newer than what you have? Maybe a new vehicle, maybe you walk out to your car, and I don't know, maybe it's a van that's got a dent in the back bumper, just perchance, and you think, boy, it'd be nice to have something newer than this. Or you look at your television, and while you're watching your television, there's an advertisement for a newer television that looks better than what you have, and you think, man, I, I wish I could have that, I want that. Or, or maybe it's, that's the kind of stuff you don't care about. Maybe it's, man, I, I want, I want a new countertops, or I want a new kitchen, or I, I want a new house. We've been living in this house and it, it's closing in on us, and man, I just need a new house, or, or a new video game, or a new, whatever it is. How many of you have ever wanted something new? Alright? Some of you have never wanted anything new. God bless you. Congratulations on that. There was a guy in Lithuania, who had a beat-up car. In fact, I've got a picture of his car. This is his car. He had a beat-up car, and he thought he needed something new. I don't know if you can tell, but um, I'm not sure this is a spare or if it's on the car. It's hard to kind of tell. If you want a different view of it, uh, this is the different view of the car. It was real attractive as it was kind of um, going down the street. And so, he, you know, when you want something new, you can do a couple of things. First of all, you can just dream about it, think about it pine for it, want it, desire it, or you can go to work and do something. So this guy thought, well, it's worth a try doing something. And so he took this expandable foam. And I don't know if you can see it in the picture, but he's actually pouring it in here. And as he pours it, it expands. And he (laughs) poured that all over the vehicle. And then he began to shape it like a sculptor. Now, he didn't just have problems on the outside like we saw. There were problems on the inside as well. So he put that stuff all over the inside of his vehicle as well. The next picture. And started to kind of work on that a little bit. Now, don't put the picture up yet, but here's what happened. When he got done, he polished it up, he painted it, and he rolled it out for people to see, and they were absolutely astonished. Here's what it looked like. Now, in case you want to see the inside, here it is. There it is. Looks nice. Here's the front view of it. Now, how many of you would be upset with driving that around? Hey, nobody, right? Well, I have a family. It's not sensible for me. Too bad. Put it somewhere else, right? So just to put a comparison up of the two vehicles. And here's what I thought as I was thinking about that. Is we're in Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we're talking about this concept of transformation. And for many of us that kind of grew up in the Bible Belt in the South and we talk about God and we talk about Jesus and we talk about salvation, we kind of imagine that we're a car that's just got a few paint scraps missing or it's got a little dirt on the bumper and we need to go through a car wash and that's what Jesus does. But the reality is we're a lot more like this. According to Scripture, all of us, because of what we've decided to do with our own lives, are a lot more like this car, beat up, dilapidated, rusted through. My dad used to, when I was growing up, he would take trucks and cars and he would, he, he would fix them up and sell them. In fact, my dad got a note from the uh, Tennessee State Department one time that if he sold one more vehicle in a year, he was going to have to get a dealer's license. 
I mean, he would buy trucks. He bought, picked me up in school one day in a truck that we said it had cancer, and we didn't mean that mildly. Like, you could see the road as you were driving underneath your feet. And he would take cars like this and do the work. And he didn't turn it into this, but he turned it into something nicer and sell it. Romans tells us that what God intends to do with our lives is to take the hunk of mess that we are and turn it into something that is beyond explanation. We started last week talking about this transformation that happens, and we really talked in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And then we got that scripture um, just for you to kind of see again. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says that uh, we are, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, as we said last week, the only reasonable thing to do. And the whole point of last week was this. That if God has saved us by his mercy, he has given his life for us, he has gifted us with things that we don't deserve and can't earn, then the only reasonable response from us is to give him total commitment, everything we have. And Romans chapter 12 verse 1 is one of those kind of one-time commitment night thing. This is a one-time decision that I'm going to give you everything I have, Jesus. I'm going to completely, totally commit my life to you. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he starts to work out, well, what does that look like? Do not be conformed, he says, to this world. The phrase there really means it's got a command in it that says stop or quit it. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. And what he says is do not be conformed anymore to the image of this world. The idea is that we have allowed ourselves, even as believers, we can allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by the world around us. That who we are and where we've come from and who our friends are and where we hang out and what we watch and what we listen to and how we live forms us into this pattern. And if we're not careful, if we just kind of walk along life and not really thinking about it, we will soon be molded into what the world thinks of us, even believers. In fact, most of us don't realize the impact the world has had on us, and we think we've made ourselves. But the Scripture passage is interesting because it says here that we don't have any part in this. We're just allowing it to happen. When I was growing up, my grandmother was really big into ceramics. Anybody remember ceramics like people? I mean, I know people still do ceramics, but back in my day, like when I was like 10, 11, I would I spent the whole summer with my grandmother and she would take us. Granny Nell would take us to this ceramic shop. And while she worked on some huge project, we had little projects to work on. And you go pick out what you wanted and you paint it and you put it in the oven and you bring it home. You go, look at what I made. I always made a cocker spaniel dog because at that time I had a dog named Honey. That was my dog. And so I made a dog that was like Honey. Um, even after we, my parents forced me to give Honey away, I still made them to make them feel guilty about making me give my dog away. Right? But here's the thing. I would bring it home and go, look at what I made. And the truth is, I really didn't make it. I don't know if you remember these ceramic shops or not, but you would walk in and go, I want that dog. And it was already made. All I did was put a little paint on it and let them fire it in an oven. And I was like, whoa, look at what I did. And if you messed up, guess what Granny Nell did? She fixed it for you, right? There are a lot of Christians that have been molded by the world. And we say, whoa, look at what I've done. But the truth is, we've just slapped a little color on it, maybe even Christian color on it. And we think that we're okay. But the world is the one that has shaped us and molded us. And Paul looks at the Christians in Rome and says, stop it. 
One of the leading kind of um, researchers in America for Christian stuff is a guy named George Barna. And George Barna has done studies for the last 10 years, and here's what he found just a few years ago, that almost every ethical, language, moral dimension that people who call themselves Christians in America act, think, do, watch, listen to almost exactly the same things that those that call themselves non-Christians do. I don't know if you've seen, but this study came out a couple of weeks ago and the headlines were Christianity is dying in America. Because the, we've talked about this, the number of people that say they're not affiliated with any religious group is growing and growing. And the people that identify themselves as Christian is dwindling. What's interesting is it's those same people that said a few years ago that they don't act any different than anybody else are the ones that are now saying, I'm not even a Christian. Romans 12 says, if you've been saved by grace, if God has changed your life, then stop acting and being molded and being turned into what the world wants to turn you into. There are other places, by the way, that talk about this concept of the world. Well, what does that mean? What is the world? In general, in the New Testament, the world is anything on this planet that has set itself against God Almighty. People, institutions, structures, organizations, that's the world. And particularly, it tells us in Scripture that we are to guard against three things. I think we've got a Scripture verse may not be in there. But it tells us that we have three things to guard against. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what that means is what we have to guard against, what we have to stop allowing the world to conform us to, is the passion to feel good. To do the things in our lives that makes us feel good or important or right or, you know, if it just feels good, do it. And we've talked about that for years that the world is telling us to do that. But it is never more evident than today. You just do what makes you feel good. You eat what makes you feel good. You live with what makes you feel good. You, you, you have sex with whoever makes you feel good. You be in relationship with whoever makes you feel good. This is an ancient philosophical term. It's called hedonism. It is do everything you can to make yourself feel good. The desires of the eyes are those things that we want. I kind of tricked you with that whole first thing about do you want something newer because I revved up in you some of the desire of the eyes. Man, I really wish I had that. You, you have kids or grandkids ever had them go over like to a friend's house to spend the night or play for an afternoon and they come back and say, man, I tell you, they've got this and I think we need one of those. Y'all ain't had that? Apparently not. It happens at my house. Does it happen at your house? Aren't you glad we grow out of that? Right? Driving down the street like, whoo, boy, it'd be nice to have that. The desires of our eyes are materialism and wanting more and gaining more and getting more. And then the pride of life is our place, our significance, our privileges. And Paul says, be on guard. Be careful. Don't allow the world to mold you into who it is by appealing to your desire to feel good and your desire to have more and your desire to be somebody. The next verse in Romans 12 says, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
The word transform there is exactly what we think of it. It means to take something. It's like that picture of that car, something old and dirty and rusty and turn it into something amazing. The word that is translated transformed is metamorphosis. It means a complete change of who you are, complete change of all that you are. And it says the way that we do that, we allow God. By the way, this doesn't have anything to do with us. This be conformed, the world's doing it to us. Be transformed means God's doing it to us. We be transformed by God renewing our mind. And what it's saying is, if you want to live a life that gives glory and honor to the one that has saved you, if you want to live a life thankful for the grace you have, then you need to allow God to change you and to renew your mind. And there is a decision process we have in that because we daily decide what we feed on with our mind. In fact, one of the most important decisions you'll make today is how you will feed your mind. Now, we realize that eating things that are not good for you eventually leads to health issues, right? Are you here today, right? If you don't eat a healthy diet, it's going to eventually turn into something that you can't control. And we know that. So that means we all make healthy choices every time we eat, right? I have a weakness. Can I confess something to you? I mean, we know if you eat fast food all the time, it's not good for you. I have a weakness. This is my weakness. What are those? Yeah, they're not just french fries. They are McDonald's french fries, right? There is a difference between other french fries and McDonald's french fries. And these things are no nutritional value whatsoever. Well, I mean, maybe there's some. But it's not good, whatever nutritional value it is, right? And I love these things. But if you ate these things all the time, it would be terrible for you, right? I don't know if you've seen, but there was a guy that did a documentary. He's famous for doing documentaries. A guy named Morgan Spurlock. He did one called Super Size Me, where he ate McDonald's for 30 days straight. 30 days straight, he ate McDonald's. Every meal. Three times a day. At the end of the 30 days, his body fat percentage had increased by like 8%. He had gained 25 pounds. His cholesterol was up 50 points. He was having headaches. He was depressed. He was having mood issues. He was ranging between anger and depression. And there was no other change in his life other than eating fast food every day, all day. It was the anti-Jared diet, right? Some of y'all don't even know what the Jared diet is. That's been so long ago. But here's the thing. Some of you in this room are people that want to live for Christ. You want to do what Christ wants you to do. You want to live your life devoted to him. And yet in your mind, you're daily feasting on McDonald's french fries. Stuff that is counteractive to what you're doing for Christ. And what you're watching, what you're listening to, the people you're hanging around, the places that you're going, the crowd you're with, the social environment at work, the conversations you're having. It's like you're just ordering french fries for every meal because your mental diet is, has no nutritional value. And scripture says if you want to live a life dedicated to the Lord, if you want to live a life that shows thankfulness for the grace and the mercy that he has given, then you allow him to transform you. And the way he does that is by renewing your mind, not eating this. Three things you can do to help feed your mind. First of all, and this... This is from somewhere, and it spells bio on the side if you think of life. Before God daily. Feed your mind daily as you're before God, as you're in His Word, as you're praying. You know, we, um, 
I can talk to you all that you want to hear on Sunday morning. I can read you chapter after chapter of Scripture. Jeff can talk to the youth on Wednesday nights. Ellie can lead the kids on Sunday mornings. And we could give you two or three meals a week of Bible stuff. But here's the truth. You don't live on two or three meals a week of regular food. And you can't live on two or three meals a week of spiritual food either. You've got to daily be before the Lord in His Word and in prayer and in seeking Him. In Community Weekly, that means in a local body of believers. Maybe this isn't your church. Maybe you're here visiting and you're part of another church. But you need to be a part of your church. You need to be in it. We're going to talk about being a part of church in a little bit more in a minute. But you've got to be invested in it. You've got to be there. You've got to go there. Weekly. You know, it's interesting because if you would have written this 20 years ago, this would have been like every two or three days. Like Sundays, Wednesday nights, maybe something on Saturday. But now, just weekly. Invest an hour, two hours, three hours of your week. Think about how minimal that is. Of your week. Investing it in being a part of the community of Jesus Christ at wherever you're called. And then we're called to be on mission 24-7. That just means every day, all day, we are constantly representing Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that once we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, then we'll know what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And here's what's interesting about that. The rest of Romans 12 gives us what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. But if you're not in God's word and you're not in community weekly and you're not on mission for him, you're never going to know what his mission and his desire and his good, pleasing, perfect will is. The rest of Romans chapter 12 is simply this. It's simply... Um, telling us what this life looks like. What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? What does it look like to be transformed? And it gives us three things to think about, and we're going to do this very quickly, all right? The first question it asks us to answer is, what do I think about myself? Someone has said that every person has three questions they need to answer in life. Who am I, where do I belong, and what am I supposed to do? And what happens immediately after Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is Paul answers those questions in just a few verses and tells us what we ought to think of ourselves, where we ought to belong, and what we ought to be doing. Here's what the verse says. For that a grace given to me, since this isn't of me, this is of God, this is complete from Him, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned you. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever been humbled in something you thought you were pretty good at? You ever was confident, like, I'm really good, or, or I'm pretty good at this, and you get out there, and you just get wiped out, and you're like, what in the world happened? You know, I, I like to play church softball, and I realized several years ago, I'm not that good at it anymore, but I like to play. But there was a time a few years ago, I thought I was still pretty good. And I remember just a couple of years ago, I was playing third base. That's what I always play, hot corners, where I like to play. Somebody hit a pop fly to me. And as I was backpedaling, I thought, I got it, I got it. And right at the last moment, I don't know if this ever happened to you if you play ball, like I realized I'm about two steps in front of where it's going to land. And so just casually, I take two steps back. And as I do, my left foot catches and I am full falling down. I fall down, knock my head. I about knock myself out. Brandon Frinsley joked with me. He said, I'm going to have to preach Sunday and say, well, I couldn't preach. He suffered a concussion playing third base in Saul Pitch Church League softball. All right. I did catch the ball, by the way. I did catch it. I didn't know I caught it until I got to the dugout, but I caught it. It seems to happen to me in athletics or in 
like watching a show where you think, I know stuff about that, and then somebody just knows so much more, and you get humbled. Scripture says that we ought to walk around life realizing that we know far less than we think we do. We are far less important than we think we are. We are not as great as we think. You ever been around somebody that thought that they were the be-all, end-all of the world? You ever been around those? Don't point, please don't point. All right, some of you family members are like nudging, don't do that. All right. Don't think of yourself more highly. Now, we all have to fight this. Here's the I started to do this today, and just I just decided it would maybe a little cheesy or not. But it, I started to turn around and take a, a selfie with all of you. Okay? And then, like, do that at the beginning of the sermon, and then put it up on the screen and show you, say, here's our picture from earlier. Now, let me ask you a question. If I put that picture up on the screen, what's the first thing you're going to do? Look for yourself, right? Like, where am I? Where am I? And then if you find yourself, like, there we are, look, there we are, right? You ever been to a, a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game and you see the people's reaction when they get up on the screen? Like, they just had the greatest moment of their, ah, we're on the screen. We all have this selfishness in us. But based on what we know about the grace of Jesus Christ, we can't walk around with it. And at the same time, you're also not the worst human being that has ever walked the planet, scum, no good, never going to amount to anything. Because Christ has paid a price for you and you are worthy because of Him. So you think of where you are right in the middle. Now He tells us why this is important. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Next verse says this. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so though we are one body, we're individually members. And that gets confusing because the one body and the members. But here's what he means. You have a part to play. You have a place to belong. I believe that God places people in specific churches, in specific places, at specific times, for specific reasons. And if this is the church family that you call home, or this is the church family you've been visiting for the last six months, this is the place that God is feeding you, that God is working into your life, then let me suggest something to you. You have a part to play here. And if you are not doing your part, it means that we are suffering. Now, some of you, I don't need to tell that because you're doing more than your part. And can I just say this to you? And the committee chair always hate when I do stuff like this because they're like, everybody quit. If you're doing more than what God intends for you to do, you're hurting us. This is us. There are no insignificant parts of your body and there are no insignificant parts of the church. We are one together and we are less together and less whole if you are not doing what you are supposed to do. Now he reminds him of that and says this. He says that we've all been given gifts. And the point, let me just tell you the point, the point for you now is not to figure out, okay, which of those gifts do I have? His point is, whatever it is, do it. Have gifts differ according to the grace. If prophecy, then prophesy. If service, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If exhorting, then exhort. If contributing, then give. The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, saying, listen, whatever you are contributing to the church, contribute. Can I tell you this? I don't know what it is necessarily that you are sent here to contribute. But whatever it is, you need to do it. Otherwise, you're hurting the body. Let me also just say this to you. There there are some some people out there that talk about, well, I can be a Christian just as well outside the church as I can in the church. I don't need a church family. Can I just tell you that the Bible makes that abundantly clear it's not true. 
Paul just says, here's what it means to live as a living sacrifice, to live as one committed to the Lord, to live as one who has been transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he talks about is how we interact with each other in a church setting. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? Are you contributing where you're supposed to contribute? The first question he is asked is, what do I think about myself? The second question he asks is this, how do you treat your family? And by family, I don't mean your blood kin. I mean your spiritual blood kin. How do you treat your family in church? Here's what he says. By the way, Paul, over the next few verses, packs more instruction and commands into these few verses of Scripture than anywhere else in the Scriptures, in the entire Bible. He says, first of all, when you interact with each other, let love be genuine. Just so you know, the original word there is not genuine. The original word is not hypocritical. Hypocrites back then were actors. That was the technical term for an actor, one that put on a mask and performed for people. It says, don't be somebody that has a mask that's different than who you are. Love sincerely, love passionately, love with the very being of who you are. Don't fake it. Now, his point there is not to then dwell. I'll just tell him what I think. His point is, love genuinely. Abhor, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Then he gives us permission to compete with one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. The only competition that's allowed inside of a church building is the competition where we are trying to outdo one another in serving each other. Do not be slothful in zeal. That means don't be apathetic. I can tell you what God doesn't intend for you to do, and that is just to sit there and do nothing. Be fervent in the Spirit and serve the Lord. I love this last phrase, fervent in the Spirit. The actual word picture is this in the original language. It's of a pot that is boiling over. Any of you ever um, boiled something on the stove and you put a lid on it and you turned it to a place that you thought and then you kind of forgot about it and you walked around maybe in the kitchen or you're in the living room and all of a sudden you hear that like it's all, like bubbling over everywhere? Anybody been there? Nobody's ever boiled over. That's good. All right. Anybody been there? Okay. You hear that, and you know, what do you know immediately? The thing's boiling over, and you go there, and you can't, like, you gotta take it off, you gotta take the lid off, because you can't contain what's happening. This word picture, the one before, fervent in spirit, is this. It is that we are bubbling over with what God has done in our lives, and we can no longer contain what is happening. In fact, the, the best kind of sort of picture of this is a day that Christians all over the world are celebrating today. You may not have this on your calendar, but today is Pentecost. And if you remember from Scripture in Pentecost, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to that group in the room. And as they're in the room, the Holy Spirit invades their lives and they can't do anything about it. They start praising and jumping and singing and all over the place to where people outside are like, what is happening up there? And Peter comes out and says, the guy you killed is alive. They're like, what? The guy you killed is alive. He is risen and 3,000 people were saved that day. That is fervent in spirit. Can I just be honest with you, church? We are missing this. Man, I I have no doubt that that many of you in this room, people that are part of our church family, man, many of you know the scriptures. Many of you know the right answers to give. Many of you passionately pursue truth in areas of your life. But this fervency of the lifeblood of the Spirit of God flowing out of our lives to where it is infectious to the people around us, we're missing. And Paul says that's a part of somebody that's been saved by grace. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. He goes on to say this. Rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Here's what's interesting about this for me. Paul is saying that as a church body, tribulation's coming. You have to remember that during this time, the people in Rome were under severe persecution. Be patient in the midst of that. Constantly in prayer and rejoice in the hope you have. Contribute to those that are in need and seek to show hospitality. How do you treat each other? And here's the third question. This is the last one we'll be done. How do you treat those in need of grace? You see, Paul says that if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, first of all, we're going to have a right understanding of who we are. Sinners saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, worthy only because he has deemed us that in giving us his blood and his love. Also, we treat each other well, that in the midst of our love, people are going to look at us and go, man, they treat each other so well. And then the third thing is, how do we treat those in need of grace? Look at what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Let me just give a, a preview of next week and what we're doing this summer. Next week, we're starting a series on Daniel. The BBS theme is going to be Daniel, and we're just through the month of June. We're going to look at four instances in Daniel's life when he faced persecution and how he handled it. And here's part of my reasoning behind it. Listen, I'm not chicken little, sky's falling. We're all going to be thrown in jail next week, okay? But the shift in culture and the speed at which the shift in culture is happening against what is traditional Christian belief is alarming. And we, who as Americans, I mean, this Memorial Day weekend, one of the things we celebrate is the ability to worship and to freely speak and to talk. We as Americans who have lived our lives in this kind of freedom where most people, if they aren't followers of Jesus, they at least thought we had the right ideas are moving into a time when people aren't necessarily going to think that. And we've got to learn how to treat people that disagree with us and punish us for our beliefs. And here's what I can tell you. And this is my concern because we have two options on that, I believe. The first option is to dig our heels in, to stay, that we're going to stand firm and we're going to yell back and we're going to continue the dialogue at a level and a pace that determines that we are right and there is no reason you should know we're right. We're right. And we're going to put Facebook posts up that say this is the way it should be and this is the way it used to be and we're going to talk to each other in ways that we are raising the level of discussion in our country to where we have become the offended brother and we're like the brother and the prodigal son. But what about us? Or we can react as Romans tells us and we bless those who persecute us. Bless and not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. That means don't be prideful. Don't act like you've got it all figured out. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And he goes on to say this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I believe that if we are going to make an impact for Jesus Christ, we're going to have to learn what it means to disagree without being disagreeable. What it means to say what we want to say without being mean-spirited and upset and accusatory. We've got to learn to bless those who persecute. Pray for those who harm. Don't repay evil with evil, but give what is honorable in the sight and try to live peaceably with all. 
You say, but Paul doesn't realize what's happening in America. Paul wasn't living in that kind of world. Paul didn't have to worry about this. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says that we are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. But Paul didn't understand the United States in 2015. And the answer is, you're absolutely right, he didn't. He just understood a place where if you told people you're a Christian, you could be fed to lions and lit on fire to light the way of the emperor. And when Paul says that you do whatever the government's been placed over you is supposed to do, that meant you submit to a government that if they wanted to, came and drug you out of your home, put you in jail, tried you for being a Christian, and then killed you for it. No, Paul didn't understand what it meant to be in a country where you can freely talk about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so when he says, repay no one evil for evil, he's saying when you get pulled out in the middle of the night, put in a prison cell and told you're there till you recant Christianity, don't return evil for that. Bless them. Love them. Help them. I'm afraid too many believers in America today have already made the choice to dig their heels in the sand and I'm not moving. And they're going to put out Facebook posts and emails and forward it to everybody and scream from the mountaintops about how wrong it is instead of loving the people that are still in need of grace. He goes on two more verses and then we're done. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That sounds great. That is hard to do. Someone wrongs you. Like, I'm not going to do anything about it. Last verse. To the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. People say that is extremely naive. <laughs> it's going to work. Naive or not, it's what we're commanded to do. Overcome evil with good. What does it look like to be someone that lives in light of the grace that God has given us? It means to live contrary to what you and I, even those of us that have grown up in church, even begin to think seems okay. After the first service, I had somebody stop me in the hallway and said, I know what you say is true, but I, I just have a hard time with that. Somebody else stopped me in the hallway and said, you know what, I remember when 9-11 happened and those buildings came down and somebody said, we need to pray for those that did that. I was like, no way. I can't do that. Somebody else stopped me in the hallway and told me an old story about uh, an old shop owner that had somebody come in and say, you believe all that Bible stuff? And he said, yeah. And he said, what if someone hit you on the cheek? Would you turn the other one? He said, yeah. What if they hit you on that cheek? Would you turn the other one? He said, no, I'd hit them back. Like there are limits. But that's not what Scripture says. That doesn't mean we're meek and mild. We're going to look at Daniel over the next week and we're going to see how he is strong in his faith. But we're also going to see how he is strong in his faith to the point that he wins them to his way instead of yelling at them across the way. How do you view yourself? How do you treat the people in your church? And how do you treat those people that are still in need of grace? The answers to those questions will tell you whether or not you're living a life that is thankful for the grace and the mercy that Jesus has given. Let's pray together.